Well, I wanted to uh, take a, a few weeks here to uh, step aside from some of our normal course of study. Over the past year, I've had the joy, uh, thanks to the uh, graciousness of the church, to be able to study uh, for a, a, a PhD dissertation and been able to write on that. It's been a real uh, delight as well as a labor. I haven't talked much about it because we have been so deep in the study of the Thessalonian letters for the last couple of years. But having finished that and getting ready to start a study in the book of James, I thought it might be a good time if we kind of paused from those uh, New Testament books and maybe dipped uh, a little bit into some of the things, at least that I've had the privilege of being able to uh, dive deep into over the last year. And so I wanted to share for a couple of weeks just a little bit of what uh, I've been looking at and and particularly looking at the book of Jeremiah, in, um, and very specifically Jeremiah chapter 30 and 31, section that we know so well because it contains the revelation of the new covenant, which of course is so foundational to our understanding of Christianity and the gospel. It's, uh, it's also known as the book of consolation. Chapters 30 through 33 of Jeremiah has taken on that title because it stands so distinct from the rest of the book of Jeremiah, a book that is filled with warnings of judgment and calamity that would come upon Israel. If you have read the book, you know very well it begins and it ends with these dire warnings of the coming judgment on God's people, but right There in the middle in chapters 30 through 33 and specifically 30 and 31 that we'll be looking at so closely, you have the refreshing winds of hope and optimism that come by by way of the new covenant. But to understand those, you really need to back away for a moment and frame a larger context. You need to frame, first of all, a, a literary context and a historical context to even know and understand why those those words were so refreshing and why they were framed the way that they were framed. It's important for us to, to uh, get that into our minds because Jeremiah is itself a challenging book. It's a complicated book. It's perhaps one of the most complicated in the entire Old Testament. If you have spent any time there, you probably know how challenging it is not just for the average reader, but even for the advanced scholar, it's one of the more challenging books to study in the Old Testament. People have a hard time making sense whenever they begin to read the book and how it all fits together. There's a number of reasons for that. First of all, you have to understand that the book of Jeremiah is not a book in the modern sense of the word. It's not a it's not a work, in other words, like maybe an author would have today where he sits down at a desk and picks up his writing utensils and begins to write from chapter 1 to chapter 52. It's not a book in that sense. In fact, it's more of an anthology. It's a lot of different prophetic oracles that were given over the span of Jeremiah's 40-year ministry. As I said, most of them have to do with warnings and judgments that Jeremiah was repeatedly telling Israel they need to be aware of that God would send on them from particularly the Babylonians in the north. And as you move through the book and try to understand it, it's not always clear where one oracle begins and where another oracle ends. To make matters even more complicated, in our English Bibles, these oracles are not organized in chronological order. They're all jumbled up. And I know this sounds a a little bit like a classroom. I understand uh, this is not necessarily a typical sermon, but I ask you to bear with me because I think if if we think about this issue just a little bit, it'll be very, very helpful for us, not only to understand the book of Jeremiah, but to understand the new covenant itself. And I wanted to give you then just a couple of examples of some of the chronological challenges of the book of Jeremiah. Look with me, if you will, at some of the um, 
verses. For example, if you have your Bibles, turn to Jeremiah 22. Jeremiah 22, verse 24. The text is speaking about something that happens in 597 B.C., Jeremiah twenty two twenty four. As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear it off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you're, of whom you're afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. That's Jeremiah 22. But when you look at Jeremiah 25, verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people, people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. That would be the fourth year of Jehoiakim would be the year 604 BC. So in other words, Chapter 25 is seven years earlier than chapter 22. Then the next chapter, Jeremiah 26.1. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord. So and this is not the fourth year of Jehoiakim. This is the beginning. That's another four years earlier. So this is 608 B.C., which is obviously... Uh, earlier than chapter 25. This, by the way, is describing an event that was um, recorded even in Jeremiah chapter 7, uh, an event where Jeremiah went to the temple and preached what is known as his great temple sermon, which was also in 608 B.C., and yet recorded for us back in chapter 7. So you're moving, you might say, backwards chronologically as you move through the book. And then you come to chapter 28, verse 1, and we read this. In that same year, in other words, the same year as Jeremiah 27, so this is Jeremiah 27 and 28, at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the fifth month of the fourth year, Hananiah, the son of Azer, the prophet from Gibeon, spoke to me in the house of the Lord in the presence of the priests and of all the people. So this is... This is a prophetic oracle that is dated in the fourth year of Zedekiah. That would have been 593 B.C. And then you come to Jeremiah 29. He says, these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priests, to the prophets, and all the people from Nebuchadnezzar, excuse me, whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the queen mother, the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem, an exile which took place in 597 BC. Again, moving backwards. Jeremiah 32, you read this. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the 10th year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, which is the 18th year of Nebuchadnezzar. That would be 587 B.C. But then over in Jeremiah 36, verse 1, we're back again in the 4th year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah. This word came to Jeremiah. Again, 604 B.C., a full, what is that? 17 years earlier than chapter 32. Jeremiah 39, verse 1. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem. This is the siege that began in 587 B.C. And then Jeremiah 45, verse 1. The word that Jeremiah the prophet spoke to Baruch, the son of Neriah, When he wrote these words in a book at the dictation of Jeremiah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, again, 604 B.C. That's just a few examples of some of the historical references as you move through the book of Jeremiah. It can be quite confusing. You're going through this book and you're just jumping from one king to the next, from one era to the next. It's not in sequential or chronological order. It really kind of is difficult to get your mind around what's taking place from a, from a 
historical and also from a literary uh, standpoint. So as you set out to really explore this book, it can be a real challenge to understand. And to add to the confusion a little bit, as archaeologists have done their digging around Jerusalem, what they found, particularly at the area called Qumran, which is on the west coast of the Dead Sea, they found a ton of ancient manuscripts there dating from before the time of Christ, 200 B.C., 150 B.C., As they did their digging around, they actually found old manuscripts of Jeremiah which were in a different order than what we have in our English Bible. They found some that match the order of our Bibles and they have found some that were in, it appears to be, more chronological order. These uh, discoveries in 1946 actually predated the best manuscripts we had by nearly a thousand years at that point, but demonstrated to us that during the time of Christ, there were different kinds of manuscripts of Jeremiah that were floating around being used by different groups of Jews. So this is is challenging for us to understand. Helps us to realize that there's a lot that's going on behind the scenes with this book. In fact, these um, oracles that were uh, given, uh, that were spoken, I should say, by Jeremiah, weren't written at the same time. So it's very easy to imagine that they might have circulated independently for a while before they were finally collected into this anthology and so might have been read in any number of orders. And then, to add yet another layer of complexity, you can turn with me to Jeremiah 36, a chapter that really provides One of the most interesting stories of God's providential preservation of his word and particularly of this text. And this is something again which takes place in 604 BC, right in the middle of Jeremiah's ministry. And this is what we read. And I'm just, I'm just going to read the entire chapter for us and, and then kind of gather our thoughts around it. But it's, we read this. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel and Judah and all the nations from the day that I spoke to you from the days of Josiah until today. So in other words, Jeremiah has been ministering in Israel for perhaps 15, 17 years or so up to this point, but he hasn't written anything down. It's all been oral, oral oracles, oral words that he had recited to the people of Israel, messages from God. God tells him to write it down. He says in verse 3, it may be that the house of Judah will hear all the disaster that I intend to do to them so that everyone may turn from his evil way and that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words that the Lord had spoken to him. This would have been common in these days, just like it was in the New Testament, that the authors of the letters would have used a form of dictation. They would have spoken their words and had a a professional scribe write them down. Verse 5, and Jeremiah ordered Baruch saying, I am banned from going to the house of the Lord, so you go. And on a day of fasting, in the hearing of all the people in the Lord's house, you shall read the words of the Lord from the scroll that you've written at my dictation. You shall read them also in the hearing of all the men of Judah who come out from their cities. It may be that their plea for mercy will come before the Lord and that everyone will turn from his evil way for great is the anger and wrath that the Lord has pronounced against his people. And Baruch the son of Neriah did all that Jeremiah the prophet ordered him about the reading from the scroll, the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. In the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month, all the people in Jerusalem and all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem proclaimed a fast before the Lord. Then, in the hearing of all the people, Baruch read the words of Jeremiah from the scroll in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, 
the secretary, which was in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house. When Micaiah, the son of Gemariah, son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the scroll, he went down to the king's house into the secretary's chamber, and all the officials were sitting there. Elishama, the secretary, Deliah, the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan, the son of Ekbor, Gamariah, the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all the officials. And Micaiah told them all the words that he had heard when Baruch read the scroll in the hearing of the people. Then all the officials sent Jehudi, the son of Nethaniah, son of Shalamiah, son of Cushi, to say to Baruch, Take in your hand the scroll that you read in the hearing of all the people. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said, Sit down and read it. So Baruch read it to them. And when they heard all the words, they turned to one another in fear. And they said to Baruch, We must report all these words to the king. And they asked Baruch, Tell us, please, how did you write all these words? Was it at his dictation? Baruch answered, he dictated all these words to me while I wrote them with ink on the scroll. Then the official said to Baruch, go, hide you and Jeremiah and let no one know where you are. So they went into the court of the king, having the scroll in the chamber of Elias and the secretary, and they reported all the words to the king. The king sent Jehudi to get the scroll, and he took it from the chamber of Elishama, the secretary. And Jehudi read it to the king and all the officials who stood beside the king. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter house. This would have been in the winter, obviously. There was a fire burning in the fire pot before him. As Jehudi read three or four columns, the king would cut them off with a knife and throw them into the fire pot until the entire scroll was consumed in the fire that was in the fire pot. So here you have the Lord inspiring a prophet to write his eternal word on this scroll, which is then promptly destroyed at the hands of an evil and ungodly man. Verse 24, Yet neither the king nor any of his servants who heard all these words was afraid, nor did they tear their garments. Even when Elnathan and Deliah and Gemariah urged the king not to burn the scroll, he would not listen to them. The king commanded Jeremiel, the son, and excuse me, Jeremiel, the king's son, and Sariah, the son of Azrael, and Shelemiah, the son of Abdiel, to seize Baruch the secretary and Jeremiah the prophet. But the Lord hid him. Now, After the king had burned the scroll with the words that Baruch wrote at Jeremiah's dictation, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, take another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll, which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, you shall say, thus says the Lord, you have burned this scroll saying, why have you written in it? That the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land, will cut off from it man and beast. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, he shall have none to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat by day and the frost by night. And I will punish him and his offspring and his servants for their iniquity. I will bring upon them and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all the people of Judah the disaster that I pronounced against them but they would not hear. Verse 32. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it at the dictation of Jeremiah all the words of the scroll that Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And many similar words were added to them. So here is this very interesting story about God's providential preservation of his word. It would seem that uh, Jeremiah's prophecies, which were written down on that scroll at that point, containing everything he had prophesied really from 623 BC all the way to 608, and prophesying the sure judgment that was coming against Israel, were 
in no way impactful on the king. He had no sense of grief or no sense of fear of the Lord as he heard the word of God. No sense of conviction. So much so that his hatred towards the word of God caused him to destroy it. But in God's providence, he can not only inspire a prophet, he can re-inspire him to write down the very same words and we are told he even added to it and expanded it the second time. This, by the way, just illustrates in a very practical way what we already know about the entirety of the scripture. Whenever we begin to think about these complex issues of ancient manuscripts and text tradition that comes down to us and and, uh, you know, how we have our Bible. People ask me all the time, you know, how can you be certain that the Bible that we are reading is the Bible that was read by the people in the ancient world? Well, we have all kinds of reasons that give us a lot of confidence in that, but primary among them is simply the providence of God. His power to preserve His word, which He inspired against all the devices of man, no matter what they might be, whatever they may do down to the point of destroying manuscripts that will be overcome ultimately by God. But even with this, we begin to see some of the complexity of how Jeremiah's book came down to us. It wasn't written maybe all at one time. It was written and then some parts were added to it and later on some parts were added to it. This, by the way, was happening 15 years before Jeremiah's ministry would even cease And so we know there were a number of other oracles that would have been added at various points in Jeremiah's ministry. And then, at some point, probably after Jeremiah's death, someone gathered up all of these oracles, copied them all down, maybe combined them together in a single document, Uh, but for some reason, they were not all copied in the same order as our English Bibles. Apparently, some scribes tried to place them in chronological order, tried to put them in the order they should, and this appears to be what happened with those Hebrew manuscripts that were used for the Septuagint. Jeremiah is very unique uh, among all the books of the Old Testament in that the order of Jeremiah in the Greek Old Testament is very different than the order in the Hebrew Old Testament. Because the Hebrew manuscript behind the Greek Old Testament is in more chronological order, but the Hebrew manuscript that reflects our English Bibles is different. Now, why do I tell you all this? this is, you're thinking, I didn't sign up for seminary class. You know, this is, this is all very interesting, but really, why do I need to know this? How does this help me understand what's going on? Well, because in spite of all the very clear chronological indicators that Jeremiah gives us for all these chapters, scribes chose to arrange the book of Jeremiah in the order that it's given to us in our English Bibles for a very purposeful design. It's not just haphazard. They arrange these prophetic oracles in order to draw our attention to certain ones, certain of these oracles. As a matter of fact, the tradition of our English Bible arises out of a Hebrew text which has its um, origin, you might say, in Babylon. That's where the scribes were doing the best work to preserve the Hebrew text. And this Babylonian tradition arranges these using a literary device that we call a chiasm. A chiastic structure is very common in Hebrew. If you know anything about Hebrew poetry and Hebrew literature, you know that this is uh, something you find everywhere. You find it particularly in the book of Lamentations, which was also written by Jeremiah, a group of poems by Jeremiah. And a chiastic structure is a kind of parallel structure where books or chapters or whatever it might be progressively work up to a central climax in a stair-step fashion and then work down in a stair-step fashion from that central climax. Very pointed 
that they put the main point in the middle of the poem or in the middle of the book. As a matter of fact, the book of Lamentations is one of the clearest examples of this. There are five chapters in the book of Lamentations. They're full of, uh, as it uh, might be clear, they're full of lamentations. They're full of, of all kinds of grief over what's going to happen in Israel. But right at the very center of the book, what do you find? You find chapter 3, verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I'll hope in him. That was uh, designed that way. It was designed so that as you're reading through all of this grief and lament and and uh, anguish going on in the destruction of Jerusalem, right at the center, you never forget that the Lord's mercies are new every morning. Well, it would appear when Jews who were in Babylon, who had been ripped away from their home country, taken away into captivity, Stripped of all of their wealth and their property, separated from their family, lost loved ones in battle. When they had fallen under the grievous hand of God's judgment, after hearing all of these ominous warnings, after hearing all the oracles from Jeremiah and the other prophets, after they had been filled up, if you will, with the wrath of God, all of these documented um, oracles that came to them that had been amazingly fulfilled already up to this point. When they gathered all of this stuff together, they chose to put right in the middle of it all the book that we call the book of consolation. Jeremiah 30 through 33. They combined it, by the way, with even chapter 29, which was a letter that Jeremiah wrote to the captives in Babylon and sent it to them, reminding them of this message of hope. And they put all these things together and decided not to arrange them chronologically, but to arrange them thematically in order to draw our attention to what in their hearts had become the most important part of everything Jeremiah said which wasn't about the warnings and it wasn't about the judgment. It wasn't about all that other stuff. It was these beautiful words. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not Like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my law within them. I'll write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord. For they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. You can understand why these people, when they were reading through all of these books, why their attention came to this passage. Why, if they wanted to arrange this for other people to read, why they would want to place it in their cultural and literary understanding of various books, why they would want to place it right at the middle. So that no matter when you're reading Jeremiah, how are you reading it, no matter how you interact with it, all your attention is drawn back to that central message. The Lord, who had poured out His wrath and anger because of Israel's failure, was a God of forgiveness. A God who longed to restore Israel in His love and mercy. This, as I said, has been particularly meaningful to those Jews who were carried off to Babylon, who were suffering the dreadful consequences of their sin, who had lost so much through God's hand 
of judgment. And yet now he's delivered them a message of hope and consolation. An offer of forgiveness. And for those who place their trust and their hope in God. He would forgive their sins and deal kindly with them. As a nation, God had shown him his peace. And after 70 years of captivity, he began restoring them to the land of Israel. And as they came back, these were the precious words that they held on to. And so they arranged, when they began to put this book together, they arranged the book so that this oracle of the new covenant would be placed right at the center of the message. Now that's kind of the literary context. You can understand why that becomes the essential part that we need to understand. But there's also a historical context. And, and if you're going to understand Jeremiah, we also need to grab hold of that because there are a lot of chronological historical markers throughout the book. But to get there, we don't even begin with the book of Jeremiah. We need to begin with the Old Covenant. And the obligation that had been laid out for Israel in the Old Covenant. You can't really even understand the New Covenant until you understand the Old Covenant. So we have to understand a bit of what was taking place through all of that and reconstructing some of that to understand where Jeremiah was coming from and where the people of Israel would have been Uh, hearing his words. And to do that, we have to turn back to the book of Deuteronomy. The book of of Deuteronomy. This was was the book of the law, or sometimes as called in in, in Jewish circles, the Torah. It had been laid out by Moses. It had been presented to Israel, originally presented at Sinai, whenever they were wandering in the wilderness. And he presented the, the covenant of God to them. In Exodus 24, they had a ceremony where he called all the people together and he read in their hearing all the words of this book and the people responded in Deuteronomy, excuse me, Exodus 24, 7, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And then Moses took blood and he threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And in that ceremony, they pledged their singular obedience to God above every other God. Well, when you come to Deuteronomy chapter 5, Moses recounts to them. In fact, the word Deuteronomy basically means second law. This was, this was at the end of the wilderness wandering and now he's reminding them almost 40 years later of the covenant that they had made before they enter into the promised land, reminding them of the pledge and he tells them particularly in, in verses 22 through 27, Moses reminds them of all the things that they said, all the things they committed themselves to, the covenant they, the, that they had struck, if you will, with God to give him their obedience all of their days. And in chapter 6 through 27, he basically takes the Ten Commandments and he unfolds chapter after chapter an explanation or an application of what those commandments should mean in their lives. These are individual, if you will, cases, case studies of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 6 through 27. Or 6 through 26. Turn with me, if you will, for a moment to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. Moses begins to tell them this. If, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments that I commanded you today, the Lord your God will set you on high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of the ground and the fruit of your cattle and the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. And he goes on recounting these blessings that will come if they obey. Let's skip down to verse 15. But... If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God, 
or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall your basket be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, the increase of your herds, the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. Go down to verse 25. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You shall go out one way against them and flee seven ways before them. You shall be a horror to all the kings, kingdoms of the earth. And your dead body shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth. And there shall be no one to frighten them away. The Lord will strike you with the boils of Egypt and with the tumors and scabs and the itch of which you cannot be healed. The Lord will strike you with madness and blindness and confusion of mind. And you'll, you'll grope at noonday as the blind grope in darkness. And you shall not prosper in your ways. You shall only be oppressed and robbed continually. And there will be no one to help you. See, already the Lord knew. He knew exactly what was going to take place. He had given him this commandment and with his promises of blessing. But he knew what was in their hearts. And he knew where their rebellion would take them. And so already he's laying the groundwork of the history of Israel. Already he's laying out the prophecies of what's going to happen because he knew that in their heart they loved rebellion. They loved sin. Down in verse 36. Deuteronomy 28, 36, the Lord will bring you and your king whom you set over you to a nation that neither you nor your fathers have known and there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone. Verse 45, all these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you until you're destroyed because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you. They shall be to you, be a sign and a wonder against you and your offspring forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things. Therefore, you'll serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst and nakedness and lacking everything. And he'll put a yoke of iron on your neck until he's destroyed you. The Lord will bring a nation against you from afar, from the end of the earth, swooping down like an eagle. A nation whose language you do not understand, a hard-faced nation who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. It shall eat the offspring of your cattle and the fruit of your ground until you're destroyed. It will leave you, it will not leave you grain, wine, or oil, the increase of your herds or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. They will besiege you in all your towns until your high and fortified walls in which you trusted come down throughout all your land and they'll besiege you in all your towns throughout all your land which the Lord has given you. Verse 64, the Lord will scatter you among all the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you will serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you or your fathers have known. And among the nations you will find no respite. There will be no resting place for the sole of your foot, but the Lord will give you there a trembling heart, failing eyes, and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have no assurance of your life. In the morning you'll say, if only it were evening. And in the evening you'll say, if only it were morning. Because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sight that your eyes shall see. This is terrible. I mean, that's... That is a heavy, heavy warning. I mean, it's it's tough to read. I'm I'm, I'm only skipping around. I'm leaving some of the other parts out. It's tough to read to hear how heavy are these warnings that the Lord was laying out for Israel in order to plead with them to follow a pathway of obedience even though, even though, He knew that they wouldn't. Finally, chapter 30, verses 1 to 10. And when 
all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I've set before you, and you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord has driven you, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I commanded you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you. He will gather you again from the peoples where the Lord has scattered you. If you're outcast or in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there the Lord will gather you. From there he'll take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and the enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I commanded you. The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hands and the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your cattle, the fruit of your ground. For the Lord again will take delight in prospering you as he took delight in your fathers when you obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and statutes that are written in the book of the law when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul text couldn't have been more clear God laid it all out from the beginning he knew what they would do he knew they would disobey he knew he would drive them into a foreign land he knew that in that foreign land they would finally reach the point where they would weep over their sins he knew they would finally reach the point where they would mourn over their over their iniquities and he knew he knew at that point that he would show his mercy to them again and begin to restore them as he promised. The whole thing was there. The whole plan was laid out for them. Unfortunately, they didn't listen. And that kind of takes us from their old covenant to their history of rebellion under the kings. And we don't have time to trace all of this, but basically for 400 years, they were under the leadership of judges. And we're told In the book of Judges, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. And you have documentation, one after the other, of the weaknesses of their flesh, how people would claim to be the people of God, and yet repeatedly through their actions, they would rebel against him. This was followed by a period of united monarchy, where under the kings uh, Saul and David and Solomon, the people feigned obedience to God, But even their kings were unfaithful to God and the people followed suit. That was from about 1050 B.C. to 930 B.C. And this was followed by a divided kingdom where the kingdom was split into the north, known as Israel, and the south, known as Judah. And each of them for 300 plus years having their own kings who were consistently disobedient to the Lord, consistently doing evil in His sight, So much so that in 723 BC, the northern kingdom was attacked and the following year utterly destroyed and all the people taken into captivity into Assyria, the world power at that point. The southern kingdom Judah continued and yet things got worse and worse and worse, perhaps reaching its low point in about the middle of the 7th century BC when a man named Manasseh came to the throne and we're told he was exceedingly wicked, more so than every king before him, so much so that he took Israel back all the way to the days before they ever entered the promised land. We're told that Manasseh made Israel more wicked than the nations who were driven out before the Lord. He even burned people as human sacrifices He even burned his own children on an altar in the valley of Hinnom, a topheth made to the God of Molech. That was the condition of Israel up until the time of 640 BC when a young boy named Josiah ascended the throne at the tender age of eight. 2 Chronicles 34 tells us That in the eighth year of his reign, that is when he was 16 years old. 
in the eighth year of Josiah's reign, he began to seek the God of David, his father. And in the twelfth year, that is when he was 20, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places and the Asherim, that is the the, the idolatrous images and all the carved and metal images. Later in 2 Kings, we, we read, before him, that is before Josiah, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses, nor did anyone like him arise after him. Finally, 700 years Finally, after suffering under wicked and oppressive king after king, after suffering under compromising judge and, and kings, finally, there was a king like no other. One who from his heart led Israel in righteousness. Which takes us to our third point of historical background, which is a reformation that was launched under Josiah, the Reformation by Josiah. And we can pick up the story in 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings 22, beginning in verse 1. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozketh. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the ways of David his father. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the 18th year of King Josiah, the king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money that's been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. People would come from all over Israel to the temple, and as they came into the temple, there was a box, and they would drop their money in the box, and it slowly collected the funds. So he says, go and collect these funds. And verse 5, let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have oversight of the house of the Lord, and let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord, repairing the house, that is to the carpenters and the builders and the masons, And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house of the Lord. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into the hand, for they deal honestly. So here, Josiah is launching a program to restore the house of the Lord, which had fallen into disrepair by his time. From the time of Manasseh, it had been neglected. Manasseh had moved into the temple and it set up. Uh, altars and shrines to other gods. Josiah went in and cleared out all of those things, but the buildings and the archways and everything had been had had fallen into disrepair. So he launches a program to restore the house of the Lord. Verse eight. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, "I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord." And Hilkiah gave the book to Shapen, and he read it. And Shapen, the secretary, came to the king and reported the king, your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and delivered it in the hand of the workmen who have oversight over the house of the Lord. Then Shapen, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shapen read it before the king. This was in the 18th year of Josiah. So here this young boy now 26 years old in the temple that sits right at the top of Jerusalem right above the king's palace it had been neglected and he had ordered these repairs and they discovered this book this becomes the defining moment in Josiah's life this book which apparently had been lost Apparently, Josiah had never actually read from the book of the law, the Torah. We don't really know how he even knew to lead the reforms. We don't know how he knew what to do in getting rid of the idols. 
We know that there were prophets. We know Zephaniah and we know that Jeremiah and we know that Huldah, the prophetess, were active during these days. So we know that there were some people who were communicating to Israel the words of the Lord. We also know that there were all kinds of religions that were carrying on throughout the land of Israel and all around them, which had no written text. They maintained themselves simply by ritual and by tradition without anything like scripture. There were all kinds of complete ideas of sacrifices and priesthood and a sort of worldview or a theology of sorts, but no sacred text. And Israel apparently had fallen into the same kind of structure where things were passed on by tradition. There was a general idea of their God and a general idea of faithfulness, but no specifics. And through the years, Israel and Judah, under all their wicked kings, had lost touch with their own scripture. Perhaps even at times, men like Manasseh, who were so violently against the word, were very much like Jehoiakim, who burned the scroll of Jeremiah, perhaps they themselves had hunted down every copy of God's word they could and destroyed it. Yet once again, we find that the Lord preserves his word. Verse 11. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. The king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Iacom, the son of Shapen and Akbor, the son of Micaiah, and Shapen the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me, and for the people, and for all Judah, concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book, to do according to all that's written concerning us. I mean, we just, we just read from this book, right? We can understand the way this hit Josiah. Once they, once they started reading the book, once they got to Deuteronomy 28 and he starts hearing all of these things, cursed you'll be in the city, cursed you'll be in the field, cursed you'll be when you go out, cursed you'll be when you come in. When he starts hearing all of these things, Josiah is absolutely struck with grief. He rips his robe in the anguish of his soul as he hears the warnings that are coming from God. And he demonstrates here the genuineness of his faith. This is the response of a true believer when he realizes, he or she realizes that they've sinned against the Lord. There is no flippant response. He doesn't shrug his shoulders and walk away and think, well, that's too bad. There's genuine agony in his conscience. There's a recognition of God's right to judge him, of God's right to anger and wrath. There's a grief in his soul because he knows exactly what he deserves and the people deserve. And he immediately wants to know, is there any hope? Is there any other word from the Lord that might offer guidance in light of all these things? And so he sends his officials to the northwest part of Jerusalem to consult with a prophetess named Huldah. Verse 14, so Hilkiah the priest and Iacom and Akbar and Shapen and Isaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalem, the son of Tikvah, the son of Haris, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, that is the northwest quarter. And they talked with her. And she said to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants and all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read because they've forsaken me, they've made offerings to others' gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you've heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse and you've torn your clothes and wept before me. I've also heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, 
Behold, I will gather you to your fathers. You shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see the disaster that I'll bring on this place. So she makes these basic two points. Destruction's coming. The Lord will be true to his word, but because you've humbled yourself and your heart was tender to the word of God, God would allow you to live his life without having to see this destruction coming. Again, here you see the heart of a true believer. Because in verse 1 of chapter 23, the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. The king went to the house of the Lord, and with him and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that they had found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before God to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments, his testimonies, and his statutes with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and to perform all the words of the covenant that were written in the book. And all the people joined in the covenant. So you have kind of a covenant renewal ceremony going on here. A lot of people will read that and say, why do you do that? I mean, he already, God had told you that the, the destruction was inevitable. Why would you do that? Because listen, the heart of a believer is not fundamentally pragmatist. We don't follow God because of some contractual arrangement of prosperity. We don't follow God because we believe that if we do certain things, that God owes us in response certain things. That's not what Josiah was all about. He was no pragmatist. He wanted to do this because this honored the Lord. So many people today, I mean, they they think about ministry, they think about leadership, they think about what you do even in the church, and it's all for them about producing a certain result. And if you are doing whatever you're doing, if, if they conclude that it's not going to produce a certain result, then they think, why in the world do it? Well, we do it because God commands it and because it honors the Lord. And here you have Josiah doing the same thing. He wants, nevertheless, knowing the judgment's coming, he wants to honor the Lord. In verses 4 through 14, document his efforts. He goes and removes the pagan vessels from the temple. He deposes the pagan clergy. He pulverizes the idols in verse 6. He wrecks the the, uh, quarters of the male prostitutes that had set up shop in the temple grounds. He tears down the high places. He ousts the priest. He goes down to the valley of Hinnom and he destroys the Topheth where they used to burn their children in fire to the god Molech. He smashes the idolatrous altars in verse 12. He, he eliminates the altars that Solomon had set up on, on the uh, Mount of Olives. He destroys everything that was associated with the fertility gods. This is just some of what he was doing in the next 10 years of his life. Verses 15 through 20 document how he even went up to the northern kingdom that had been separated from Israel and he made gestures to to reform them as well and bring them in line with true worship and to reunite the two kingdoms. In verses 21 through 23, he reinstitutes the Passover, which hadn't been kept faithfully, we read, for some 400 years. He does all of those things, and yet down in verse 24, we read, Moreover, Josiah put away the mediums and the necromancers and the household gods and the idols and all the abominations that have been seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem, that he might establish the words of the law that were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest had found in the house of the Lord. Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his might, according to the law of the Lord, nor did anyone like him arise after him. Still, verse 26, still, the Lord did not turn from his burning wrath, burning of his great wrath by which his anger was kindled against Judah because all the provocations which Manasseh had provoked him. And the Lord said, I will remove Judah also out of my sight as I removed Israel. I'll cast off this city that I've chosen, Jerusalem, and the house which I said, my name shall be here. Josiah was followed briefly. Uh, Josiah dies in 608 in battle. He was followed briefly by Jehoahaz for three months. He was taken captive. 
into Egypt and Jehoiakim for the next 11 years and Jehoiakim led people right back into idolatry. It's probably around this time we read in Jeremiah 7 that he goes into the temple with this temple sermon and um, uses the book of the law which had been discovered just 14 years earlier and he says in verse 9, will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, Make offerings to the Baals and go after other gods that you've not known. And then come stand before me in this house, which is called by my name. Say, we are delivered only to go on doing these abominations. Has this house, which is called by name, my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. For all of Josiah's best efforts at reform, it was just superficial. It was just superficial. For all those outward laws that were reinstated, for all the morality that was held up, it was just superficial. And Israel was still profoundly corrupt. This had been the greatest king since David, maybe even greater than David. And yet, Jeremiah... We read in Jeremiah 3.10 in the days of Josiah, he says this, Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. Or Jeremiah 12, Jeremiah says, you plant them and they take root, they grow and produce fruit. You're near to their mouth, but far from their hearts. Jeremiah knew it. He knew that their rebellion was so deeply entrenched it could not be uprooted by mere laws. What Israel needed, they couldn't produce on their own. What Israel needed couldn't be brought about by some godly king. What Israel needed wasn't going to be achieved by some moral reform program. What Israel needed was a whole new covenant. The Lord brings that. He, 597, Babylon attacks, deports many of the Jews, Daniel and others. They go on in their rebellion and turning from the Lord for the next 11 years, refusing to listen. And then in 598, they come again, excuse me, 587, they come again, besiege the city, overtake it, level it to the ground, completely destroying the temple, completely eradicating all the leaders, leaving the land populated but nothing but a bunch of Bedouin farmers. They take all of Israel into captivity. And in captivity, they receive the word from Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming when I'll make a new covenant, not like the covenant I made with your fathers. This covenant which they broke. He says, I'll give them a new covenant. I'll write my law on their heart and I'll be their God and they'll be my people. They'll know me from the greatest to the least. I'll forgive their iniquity. And remember their sin no more. You can understand why this nation cherished those words so much. You can understand why among all the prophecies which came true, which were miraculous in themselves, why their attention would have been drawn to these words. By the way, it's not just Israel, it's you You yourself, no matter what your outward form of religion, you yourself can't deal with your own heart. It's none other than Jeremiah who says the heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? That's our dilemma. We may not have been raised in a society with a temple and sacrifices and all those other things. We may not have even been formally under that covenant with Israel, but we're in the same condition. Time after time after time, we make our reform efforts. Time after time after time, we try to 
do what's pleasing to God and all we end up doing is finding ourselves at a place of anguish. We're like those Jews who in the morning wake up and say, oh, that it was evening. And in the evening, we end our day and saying, oh, that it was morning. My life has become miserable because of my rebellion, because of my sin. Listen, you need the new covenant as much as Israel ever needed the new covenant. You need God coming and saying to you, I'll give you a new heart. I'll write my law inside of you. I'll put my spirit within you and I'll forgive your sin and remember your iniquity no more. You need God to make a new covenant with you. You know, the good news is he did that with Jesus Christ. The covenant was established in that moment on the cross with the sacrifice of the lamb who was spotless and the pouring out of his blood. Just like Moses sprinkled blood on the people of Israel at that covenant ceremony, you can have the blood of Christ seal a new relationship with God for you. This is the message of the scripture. This is the message of the Old Testament. And our prayer for you today is In the midst of all of this stuff that you hear that message, the message that God invites you and I into this kind of a relationship. Next week, we'll have a chance to look in detail at chapters 30 and 31. I hope that you will be here for that so that you can hear in even more uh, specific context exactly what the grace of God accomplishes in those who seek him. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Father, we're grateful for this word. It is, um, it's near to us because of your grace. It's in our hearts and on our lips. You have granted to us to understand it. Lord, we're so thankful for the clarity of your word. We pray that even this study will compel us more and more to feed our hearts and souls. And I pray for those here this morning, Lord, who have still rebellion in their hearts. They draw near to you with their lips, but their hearts are far from you. We pray for them, Lord, that they would reach the point of Josiah. That they would hear your warnings and hear your word. That they would rend their hearts and bow before you in humility. That you might enter into their lives. Grant them your forgiveness. Give them a new heart so that finally they may walk in fellowship and in your blessing. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.